0: Pixis Lab now offers devices capable of measuring fluorescent polymer. The ST590 inline sensor and the SP350P handheld are exclusive for measuring tagged polymer only. But you know Pixis, they didn't stop there. Pixis is known for making your life simpler. So they created the ST588 sensor and the SP380P handheld. Both of which are capable of measuring both tag polymer and PTSA in one easy to use device. All of these new devices come with the signature Pixis Color and Turbidity Compensating Technology. This ensures your system assets are protected and your measurements are accurate. More than a meter, more than a probe, it's Pixis. To find out more about Pixis Labs' full line of products, go to ScalingUpH2O.com forward slash Pixis. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, your host for Scaling Up H2O. And Nation, welcome to a brand new episode of your favorite industrial water treatment podcast. Folks, I want to remind you one of my favorite things is coming up. Of course, one of my favorite things is hosting this podcast, but I can't see you as you listen to it. However, if you join me on the upcoming hang June 10th, I will be able to see you. I know a lot of you have joined the hang each and every time that we have put it on. I absolutely love The Hang. I get to see all of you. I get to meet new people. I even get show ideas sometimes on The Hang. You guys will private message me and let me know that you want me to talk about something. Folks, keep all of that coming. And by all means, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang to make sure that you are registered for The Hang. Again, that's June 10th. 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Folks, I'd love to see you there. Up Nation, we are getting ready to celebrate the 200th episode of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. There have just been so many milestones within the Scaling Up H2O podcast. We have thousands of listeners. We have listeners in over 70 countries around the world. And when I think of the people that I've met, the people that have reached out to me to tell me what this show has meant for them, folks doing this show, being the host of this show, it is priceless. And I want to give back to you. I want to celebrate you on episode 200. In order for us to do that, I need for you to go to ScalingUpH2O.com and record your voice You'll simply click the record voicemail button on the right side of the screen and let us know what this show has meant to you. What do you want to tell the Scaling Up Nation and the staff of the Scaling Up H2O podcast about what this show has done for you? Folks, I can't wait to hear your recordings. I can't wait to share them on our 200th episode. And I can't wait to bring you 200 more Scaling Up H2O episodes. Nation, before we get to our guest, here is another installment of James's Challenge.
1: Hello, Scaling Up Nation! The next James' challenge as we grow as an industrial water treatment professional drop by drop is. Use your sense of touch to determine which softer vessel is online, if chemicals pulsing through feed tubing, etc. As industrial water treatment professionals, we must use all our senses to monitor and manage our water applications. Touch can be used to feel the cooler water running through the online softener or the warmer water setting in the standby softener. There are other ways to use your sense of touch as well. See if you can figure them out. Just be sure to always practice safety first and not touch something that will burn or harm you. Be sure to share your experience on LinkedIn by tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O. This is James McDonald and I look forward to seeing what you share.
0: Once again, if you are completing the challenges, and I sure hope you are, because if you are, that's 52 things you will do up and above your average day-to-day, making you a better industrial water treater. But don't just do them, share them. You can do that by going to hashtag jc 21 or hashtag scaling up H2O. I love to look at how people interpret James's challenge and then also see how people sometimes even redo James's challenge because they were inspired by someone else. So, James, thanks for inspiring all of us with a new challenge each and every week. Last week, I mentioned that I was inspired by our guest, Danny Bauer. And I went to the website anagrammer.com, put in Trace Blackmore, and my name Anagram is Rockable Mercat. I've received more comments than I thought about that. I'm curious if you have gone to that site and figured out what your Anagram name is. And I'm also curious, has it inspired you to do something? I have to say, Rockable Mercat, there is a visual there. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do with that, but hey, it's fun to think about. Anyway, lots of fun things we're always doing in the Scaling Up Nation. So if you've done that, I would love for you to let us know on social media, hashtag it h 20 and let us know what your anagram name was or if it's inspired you, or if you just think this is the most ridiculous thing that we have ever done on the podcast. All right, let's shift gears totally. I wanna go ahead and introduce our next guest, Michael Reinhart. And folks, we're going to learn so much about the technology that we're using. My lab partner today is Dr. Michael Reinert, enterprise architecture expert and owner of Reinert Consulting. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, thank you for having me. Okay, I'm gonna be completely honest with you, with the Scaling Up Nation. We're gonna be talking about enterprise architecture, information technologies, cybersecurity, all these things that I really don't know a lot about. So I really need your help during this conversation, and I know the Scaling Up Nation needs your help with this information.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I know with your experience as a host and my knowledge of the subject, we will get through it with flying colors. So we had an episode earlier, 165, where we talked
0: just about cybersecurity, and there were a lot of buzz that came back around me with that episode where people said they wanted to know more, that we just scratched the surface. And I think that was good. That was what that episode was meant to do. There were some action steps that people could take. We had some things on our show notes page that our guest gave us, but people are really concerned about what they need to know about protecting their information. And I think as you and I were talking before the episode started, I am in the process of renewing our insurance And I don't remember last year, maybe they were on there, but if they were, there were a lot more this year. There were so many questions about our policies regarding our information that was coming into the company and information that was leaving electronically. So I'm hoping we talk about all of that and give the Scaling Up Nation things that they can go home and start doing. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Well, as we get started, I always like to have my guests tell the Scaling Up Nation a little about themselves. And the nice thing about you, Michael, is you've got water treatment experience that you're going to bring into this conversation. So can you tell the Scaling Up Nation a little about yourself?
2: Sure. Thank you. So my first real eye-opening experience with water was when I was in the Navy. I was a nuclear reactor operator on an aircraft carrier. And boy, you you get uh, you get a quick understanding of the importance of of things related to water, water quality, water treatment, water testing. And it's something that you work with every day in a nuclear power plant, of course. And then the other part of it was not just the power plant, but a massive desalinization operation. There's somewhere around six, thousand people on an aircraft carrier. And so it's a massive effort to create enough water for drinking and cooking and everything else that you need fresh water for. So that was a big eye-opener with respect to water. Uh, And then just a kind of a fun fact as an introduction, we were on our way to the first Gulf War, and we stopped in the Philippines. And that's the day in 1991 that Mount Pinatubo erupted. And uh, we helped rescue 6,000 people roughly from the Air Force Base and move them to safety uh, further south on the island. Wow. So that was quite an experience. But that was my first real uh, eye-opening event with water. And then my second was I ran a school garden program in the U.S. Virgin Island of St. John. And this was a collaboration between Iowa State University and Gift Hill School. And we were asked to go down there and start a school garden program. And one of the things we found out when we got there is there's only three freshwater wells on the whole island. And certainly none at the school. And so the only water you have is what you capture off the roof into a cistern. And so you have to use water very, very carefully. Not only does it have to be treated and tested, but but it's, it's scarcity. And so we had to do everything with drip irrigation and in, in containers. And we had a lot of work to do to educate ourselves and then those around us about the, the careful use of water. So So just those two things by themselves were really eye-opening events with me uh, related to the water industry. I'm curious, how successful was your waterless garden? Uh, It was quite successful. Again, we set up drip irrigation. We did everything in pots so that we could very carefully measure our use of water. We would keep an eye on the water levels in the tanks and work with the administrators at the school. Uh, And we we had a lot of success because on on the island of St. John, it's pretty remote and it's very small. And so they don't have fresh food. And whatever fresh food gets to the island is not really fresh anymore and the locals can't afford it. And so we were asked to bring in the idea of container gardening using low amounts of water so that people could learn how to grow even some basic fresh food for themselves and improve health. And it was an amazing thing to do. But even the wealthy people on the island they only use the water in their cisterns because getting fresh water is brought in by truck and very very expensive and so it was an amazing experience and certainly you don't take water for granted anymore after the the two things that I did there. so in this school garden program, the way I got there was I earned a PhD in information sciences and technology at Penn State and and from that I ended up as a faculty member at Iowa State. but I was in the Department of Horticulture, believe it or not I have multiple passions. One is horticulture and one is information science. And so I ended up in a horticulture department, which is what took me to, to the island and in the program. But, but the central theme of my career has really been information science and information technology. You know, when I was in the Navy, my particular group operated the electronic equipment in the power plant. And so that was a, a techie kind of hands-on thing. And when I, when I was at Iowa State, I developed an app for teaching and learning plant materials. It was the first app that Iowa State ever sold, which was pretty neat because Iowa State has been given credit for the invention of the computer. So at the school that invented the computer, uh, I invented the first app that they sold. And this is how, how it kind of all ties together and then moves me into you know, my more current work and more current roles around information science and technology. So, Michael, how did you go from there with working with water treatment companies? So, a lot of my career has been in information technology, and that's been, a, like I said, a central theme of my career. And so, one of the companies that I've worked with for many, many years is a company that's well-known by AWT members, and that's Aqua Phoenix Scientific. And I've known for a long time the owner, Frank Lacrone. And a gentleman that introduced the two of us named Brian Katarsky. I've known them for a long time, worked with them as a client for many years. And just through working with them as a client, of course, got to know more about them and the industry they were involved with and AWT. And then that led me to also giving a talk at the last AWT virtual conference on cybersecurity. And I've also agreed with AWT to give uh, multiple webinars this year on cybersecurity. I have an agreement with the Pennsylvania Rural Water Association to deliver a talk and even a course on cybersecurity. And so I'm, I'm making this natural evolution was with what started with my work at Aqua Phoenix and actually reaching into the water industry as well. Well, and I'm really excited to talk to you about those topics because,
0: again, you've got that water treatment spin where I think you can explain things a little better to our audience. And I'm also thinking about our audience. We've got so many different types of people in the water treatment industry that are listening to us right now. There are some people that own a company and they get exactly what we're talking about, but there are others that are working out in the field and they may not understand why what we're getting ready to talk about is important to them. So what do you have to say about that?
2: So really to me, this this really goes to the question of the evolution of IT, and what is IT? Where does it come from? Where is it going? And, and how can people make sense of that? And the way I think about IT is, especially for this industry, would be like uh, the difference between alchemy and chemistry. So alchemy existed for a very long time. And in my limited understanding, along came the periodic table, and, and we converted to chemistry. And it really became more of a profession. And the IT industry is really, really young. We haven't been around very long. We've had this huge impact on the world, but we're really young and we're really still trying to figure out what it is we're doing. How do we get more involved with companies? And so taking for granted what IT is today is not something that I do. And, and I would encourage your listeners to question, what is IT? What should it, uh, and how can it provide more value to their work and to their companies? And the way the way I typically talk about this is is I, I play with with words um, to try and explain things. And so if you take just the two letters IT, if you make those letters small and it's a small I and a small t, it's just the word it, right? It's a very simple basic word. But if you capitalize them, oh my gosh, you're talking about a global phenomenon that's changed the whole world. And it's just a matter of of changing a couple of letters really. And so to continue that theme, The way IT has developed over time has really been mostly about the T or the technology. And the I is just a descriptor or an adjective to describe what type of technology. So when people say IT, they get certain connotations in their head about what that means. And it's usually technology related. And you even have the connotation with people or you have the the phrase that I don't like, but is, is IT guys. And it's some young guys running around in t-shirts fixing computers. And that's okay, right? That's where the industry came from. But if it's going to continue to develop, we need to continue to question what it is. And so as someone that does that regularly, when I think about those two letters, I, T, I actually really mean to capitalize both letters because to me, it's about information and it's about technology. And if we're going to make better use of it, we really have to take both letters seriously and not just really be talking about technology. That's, that's really the future of the industry is, is we start to get more into the information because we can. You know, At first the technology was so hard and it was so new that all our focus just went into is my computer running today and can I print? And we've come a long way, but if we're gonna continue to evolve, we have to continue to rethink what the industry is, just like you know, we had to develop from being alchemists to chemists. And and we have a lot of work to do. We've made a lot of progress, but, but I would ask your listeners just to not take for granted what it is. It's an industry that's changing so fast that we need to continue to evolve it and the language and the way we understand it and explain it to each other. I really
0: like that definition. That makes a lot of sense. And it's a great lead into my next question because I think we're gonna define a lot of terms today. I introduced you at the top of the show as an enterprise architect expert. So with that, what is enterprise architecture?
2: Yeah, so now that we've've're we've, starting to evolve a, a little different understanding of what IT might be, you know this has been happening for a while, happening a lot in academia and and in in government and in large businesses is how do we get IT more engaged into the companies? right cuz for many places you know IT is really on the fringes of the company they don't get involved in what the company does they could work on computers at one company just like another company but that's that's not providing enough value that's not evolving the industry and so there are different ways that that people like me are trying to evolve the industry and one of them is with this term enterprise architecture and enterprise architecture there's many definitions because it's still very much a growing field The definition I like is the alignment of business strategy with information and technology strategy. Now, again, I I differentiate it. Some people would just say alignment between business strategy and IT strategy. But again, that tends to get people only thinking about the technology. So I'm very specific. The alignment between business strategy and information and technology. And this this is a way to begin to help us think about how IT can and should be more involved in a company. And the way we do that is, I'm a very information-centric kind of enterprise architect. And so I look at all the informational needs of an organization and how that information flows across the organization to create value. You know, as Lean has taught us, for those that that understand anything about Lean, is, is value comes as things flow across the organization. And it's the same with information. And this is something your listeners can do. Just sit down and and think about all the key points of delivering value in your company and the information that goes along with it. What information do you need at each point? Do you have it? Do you have enough? Do you have too little? Do you trust the information? Is it timely? And map it out and see how are we doing? And then an enterprise architect like me would take it further and say, okay, how is the organizational structure built? to move information smoothly across the organization. So I would look at business strategy documents. I would look at org charts. I would look at the, the IT infrastructure. Does data move or not move because of the IT infrastructure? So it's it's just a much more holistic way of understanding where value comes from in an organization, how companies use information, and then trying to, to wrap that collectively so that the organization as a whole can understand it. And the way to try and help explain this is, if you're a company and you had to lose one or the other, which would you rather lose? Your information or your computer systems? Well, I think if you just think about it for a minute, you'd rather lose all that hardware and replace that than the information. You can recover from losing your hardware. If you lost all your company's information, you're in big trouble. And so then you begin to understand, wow, my information is really an asset and enterprise architecture helps me rethink what is this asset and how do I make the best use of it? I really love how you compared that to Lean and it it created a thought in my
0: head where let's say my executives, my leadership team are around the conference room, we figure out a problem, we start talking about how we're gonna solve it and that now becomes a document that people need to be able to access. More often than not, we put a lot of work in, in the beginning, the document's great, but nobody knows it's there and nobody knows how to find it. And then if they don't use it very often, they don't know how to refine
2: it. Is that exactly what we're talking about? It is, and, and we do a very poor job with managing information. And one of the ways you, you know that as an IT professional is when someone leaves an organization and they have their whole folder full of documents, as a test many years ago, I would take that folder and cut everyone's access to it and then see if anyone came asking for any of the information in that person's folder and you never get anybody asking for it. So that person did all that work for all those years in the organization. They recorded all that information in documents and spreadsheets. They leave and it's just, no one ever looks at it. And that's, it's, it's incredible. That's such a loss of knowledge that just walked out the door. Even though it was digitally captured, it still wasn't used. And so one of the things that enterprise architects tend to do, like I do, is we capture information in drawings and we create maps or mental models of the work we're doing. And at my clients, they have these mental models printed and posted in their offices. And we, we get together, they pull the mental model down And we actually put it on the table and we review it as a way of, are we still on the same page? Do we still understand what we're all trying to do here? What are the associated documents that we need to explain this mental model? And so I use shapes and colors as enterprise architects do so that we try to stay connected with the information that we've already gone over, over and over again. But as you say, Trace, we often lose and we forget about it.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard that from many business owners. A great salesperson will retire and all that information is lost. And most likely, it's probably hidden somewhere in all their data or information as we're talking about
2: it. Right. And if you ask when someone leaves, if you ask, you know, what should I do with this data? People will say, oh, uh, just leave it there in case we need it. And I can tell you as an IT professional, nobody ever goes and looks for it. So clearly we're not doing a very good job of capturing information in a way that's usable or reusable outside of that one individual. This is why I say, Trace, we're alchemists here. We're very much, as a a human race, still trying to figure out in this digital world how we use information effectively because there's so much inefficiency. And so that's why lean is an important concept even in enterprise architecture. So how
0: should a water treatment company start looking at their information to make sure that everybody knows where things are, they're using those things, and let's say if somebody leaves the organization that they can't
2: take all of that information with them? Yeah, so there's a few things there. So the first piece of it is I think of and help my customers think of, and enterprise architects do this, think of information as an asset companies are used to managing assets, right? Whether they be facilities or people, they're used to managing assets, but they often don't think of information itself as an asset. And, and as I referred to earlier, you know, if you lost all your company's information, you would be done. It would be incredibly hard to ever recover from that. And so when you begin to think about IT as information and technology, and you begin to think about information as an asset, you can start to really question, well, how are we using our company's information? And where is it stored? And what are our needs? And what happens when somebody leaves? And, and it really is a a really a change in mindset, Trace. It's, it's not just thinking about the computers and the technology, it's really specifically thinking about that information and as an asset, and how do you develop your other assets? How do you protect and train and treat your other assets? And when you start to think about information as an asset, boy, it can really change your trajectory of of the value you get from that really important asset over time. Well, in water treatment, there
0: are many different ways to do what you're trying to do. And I'm sure IT is no different. So what are some of the ways that we should be looking at to manage our IT?
2: So traditionally in IT, you know, it started with people that kind of gravitated to the technology. And as companies got bigger and they started to bring in that technology, they they would get someone maybe part-time and then full-time to help manage their computers. And we had this growth of kind of what we call in-house IT, where you do it yourself with your own employees. And the nice advantages to that is that person or people are just going to naturally learn more about your business. And they're gonna learn the context of who you are as a company, what is your culture, what are your needs. And so they even if they're taking care of computers more than thinking about information, at least they're doing so within the context of who you are as a business. And that's really important. The other model that's grown very significantly even in the last few years is the idea of outsourcing IT. And these kinds of companies are called MSPs or managed service providers, and they are providing managed IT services. And the nice thing about about MSPs and outsourced IT is, is they're very efficient. They do the same things over and over again. They use the same technologies from customer to customer, and they manage IT efficiently and cost effectively. The problem is that there's not much context into you as a business because they, they can't get into that, that's more difficult. It's much more difficult to manage something that's contextual than something that's not. And the technology is often the same between companies, but the information is not. And so with this growth of outsource IT, one of the things that we're missing is we're missing trying to push the industry forward and in, in also managing information. And so there's a third model that's really still very much developing today. It's a hybrid model called co-managed IT. And co-managed IT, again, there's this is still new, there's different definitions and ways people think about it. If you come from the MSP perspective to talk about co-managed IT, you talk about it as perhaps you know, you take care of your in-house person, takes care of your PCs, but the, the outsource firm takes care of the servers. They're still real talk, still talking about the technology but you get some outside help, which can be valuable as things can continue to change all the time. The way a company like mine and an enterprise architect would talk about co-managed IT is no, no, let's build a relationship between helping you understand and managing your information and then the associated technology that it takes to do that as well. And so, in a really modern definition of co managed IT, it's really building that relationship around the information and the technology. And that's where, if you have people with real expertise in something like enterprise architecture, whether it's formal or informal, it can really help your company think differently about IT and the money you put into IT and the value you get back from it. Again, this is evolving very quickly simply trying to figure out how to push this field more away from alchemy and towards chemistry.
0: I mentioned at the top of the show that we are recently being asked to answer more and more questions to this topic when we're renewing our insurance policies. And and like I said, I had to look up some of the terms. I was unfamiliar with them. So if we were working with a partner, would we get them
2: involved with that process? Absolutely. So different companies take different approaches. You know, I know a lot of MSPs, a lot of people that have been in IT a long time. We constantly talk to each other uh, about how we're evolving our businesses. You know, my particular approach and the way I work with and the companies that I tend to like in this space, I help even my customers document their strategic plans. Because if we're going to align business strategy with information and technology strategy, have to have a written business strategy, which is not always the case. And that doesn't mean it has to be crazy formal and many pages. I tend to use a template that's a one-page strategic plan template. And sometimes I'm the moderator for executive teams at clients to help them define their strategic plan. And so we get very deep into the company and involved. And then once we know their strategic plan, well, now we have a better way of understanding, well, what information do you need? And what information technology do you need to help make that strategic plan come true? And so you can get a little bit involved in a company with some basic things, and you can get very involved in a company. And, and I often serve as an outside member of a company's executive team just to help them do that. Because I'm thinking about strategic planning slightly differently and very holistically you know, as, as the term enterprise architecture infers, you're architecting the enterprise. And in doing so, you have to look at the whole thing. And you have to understand that there, the, the org chart matters, and the strategy matters, and the information around it matters. And all those pieces have to be fit together if you're gonna drive as much value and compete in ever-changing industries.
0: Yeah, you definitely paint a great picture on how we need to look at our information as an asset. It's unfortunate that that does not show up anywhere on our balance sheet, but we have to know that that is our biggest asset. And your question that you asked, would you rather you lose your computer? Would you rather lose your information? I think that really clarifies that. And we've been talking up to this point about making sure that people can use it, making sure it's filed properly. But now let's talk about some of the security issues. What happens if somebody has malicious intent with your information?
2: Yeah, so you think about it, when cyber criminals attack you, they're attacking your technology to get to your information. Ultimately, what they want is your information because that's where the value lies. And so again, thinking about information as an asset, then you both take the proactive steps to get value from it as we've been talking about and securing it and getting the most from it, but you also take reactive steps of what are we gonna do if something happens to our information. And in this way, I like to talk about cybersecurity as risk management. And I thought your episode 165 on cybersecurity, I thought that was a really great episode. I thought that gentleman did a very good job The only difference I have is in perspective in the way I talk about cybersecurity with companies. And as I did in my AWT talk, I talk about it specifically as risk management. And the reason I do that, Trace, is because people are used to managing risks. They have risks, again, with people, with facilities, they have training, they have insurance, they have sprinkler systems and alarms. And, and managing cybersecurity, we really need to pull it completely out of the realm of being techie talk that people don't understand. And we need to put it in plain English as risk management because companies do it, whether it's formally or informally, they're managing risks every day. And this is really no different. And if you begin to rephrase it as managing risk, well, then you do the same things you would managing any other kind of risks. What types of risks are there? How much impact one of these risks have? How do we mitigate these risks, both proactively and reactively? So so my perspective on cybersecurity is very much to put it in a common vernacular that people already speak and not use techie buzz terms that scare you or confuse you, Trace. And that's that's the way I always try to present it to people. Well, I know I definitely appreciate simpler terms, since this
0: is not my area. I remember on episode 165, I referred to a friend of mine, and he was a victim of ransomware. And he decided that it was actually easier for him to pay the ransom. It was, I, I think it was maybe 1200 bucks. It wasn't a lot. But later, I think he had issues again So my question is, what should
2: we do so we never have to worry about that? Well, I can't directly answer that because you can't get to the point where you never worry about it. These attacks are so sophisticated today that if someone specifically wants to get you, it's really hard to completely stop it. And we know that because you look at the really large attacks that happen against uh, government entities and really large companies, and even they get hacked. And the reason I think is pretty simple. We connected to the internet and we created all these technologies and we really didn't think much about the unintended consequences, right? That's something we do as humans. We create a technology and later we go, ooh, ooh, should we we have done that or should we have done it in that way? And cybersecurity is no different. I remember it at the company I worked that first connected to the internet with a high-speed internet connection. And we connected into this high speed and at first it was all great and i said you know i wonder i wonder what if i can see out to the internet what can people see of me and i ran a simple scan with the software that existed back then and i could see every computer at every company in the same building that i was in and i thought oh we just interconnected all the computers inside this building <laughs> and we didn't think twice about it and and that's kind of how we've treated the internet and cybersecurity, it's now we're trying to go back and put the pieces in place that theoretically we should have had in place, you know, the first time. And so we're, we're playing a catch-up game and the cyber criminals are trying to stay ahead of our catch-up game. And so there's never a point where you cannot worry about it. It's simply a matter of managing risk. How big is the risk? How much money do I want to spend to mitigate that risk? And then how do I protect myself? if or when somebody comes through and is successful with their attack. I mean, that's really the only way to approach it. We're playing a catch-up game and the cyber criminals are ahead of us. And can we patch the holes fast enough? And patching the holes is not a techie thing. It's very much a a cultural thing, a a training of each of our people kind of thing that we have work to do, we can do it, Trace. There are definitely ways to mitigate these risks, even ways that are cost-effective. Uh, but the first thing you have to do is just decide, this is an asset that I have to protect. There are ways to protect it. And if I work with the right kind of people that explain it to me properly, I can do so for a reasonable cost.
0: A lot of AWT companies are using Microsoft 365. Should those companies feel like they've got Microsoft backing them? A lot of the things that we're talking about as far as protecting ourselves have already been done if you're subscribing to a service like that? Definitely not.
2: So when you buy Office 365, you typically buy it through a partner, And you can buy it at different levels of care and maintenance. And the basic level is, you know, you pay your your basic license fee and you get the services, but so much more can and should go into it. Like Microsoft is not doing much to strip out potentially harmful emails. Those are those are separate kind of services that typically get put in place. And they can do some. It's usually not there by default. But they have some built-in ways to manage it. And then there are certainly third-party companies with services that can help even strip out potentially malicious content in emails and, and try and catch those phishing emails. And that's really important in two ways. The first way is stripping it before it can cause harm. And the second way is educating your users so that when it gets to them, they know how to interact with it and what to do and what not to do with it. And this is a constant, a constant effort. You know, in the early days of cybersecurity, we did what we always do. We tried to create techie solutions for it, right? We made firewalls and then we made better firewalls and we made antivirus software. And we took this very techie approach to it because that's what we do as engineers and as tech people, right? Our first solution to something is always to find a better engineering or tech solution to it. But over time, it almost always comes back to the same answer is, oh, actually we have to include people. And we keep learning this lesson over and over again because the cyber criminals realized, well, now that it's harder to attack someone's firewall, I'm actually gonna go directly to their users and try and attack their users. And if you don't teach your users a mindset about security awareness, you're incredibly vulnerable. So, and no matter of technology can prevent all of that. So. To directly answer your question, no, that's that's not enough by itself. And then the second piece is, well, how do you deal with it? Well, some of it are, are implementing more technologies and some of it is really a culture around security awareness because everything you do today that connects to the internet is constantly under attack, constantly. And if you're not aware around you, it's like walking down a bad street without knowing you're on a bad street. And we just connected to the internet and said, hey, look at all the great things that it does for us. And it certainly does. But we haven't had nearly enough conversations of unintended consequences like, oh, well, what are the downsides to that? And really, like I said, Trace, we're very much playing a catch up game. And so now we get the insurance companies involved with cyber insurance. This is very difficult for them. This is very new to them. We haven't prepared for it like we prepare for other types of insurance. And sometimes they pay out very large ransoms. One of my clients had a, a ransomware attack, and the demand was for $500,000. And they decided because of where they were, they had to pay it. Well, you've just given a cyber criminal $500,000 to continue building their capabilities of attacking somebody else. So, Unless the insurance industry and the IT people and the companies really work together, if we all take this issue on separately, we're probably going to continue to lose to the cyber criminals. But if we take it on collectively and we continue to learn and educate and train ourselves, we can actually start to to have more of a win here. But it's going to take a collective effort, not an individual effort. And again, enterprise architecture, very holistic We don't look at things piecemeal. We don't look at them one at a time. We try to connect the dots to see it in a much bigger picture and try to have much better solutions than we ever used to before, of course. The analogy you used walking down a
0: dark street, let's talk about the dark web. What is that? Is that just the regular
2: web, but now it's got different colors on it? What is the dark web? Oh, that's a fantastic transition. I love that, Trace. So the dark web is is like that dark street, or, or a lot of times you hear it referred to as the wild, wild west of the internet. And it's basically a lawless part of the internet where lots of criminal activity happens, not just cyber crime, but lots of criminal activity happens. And it's, it's lawless. There aren't rules about how it works. It's hidden. So it's very hard to find it and, and root it out and get rid of it. Sometimes you need special software to connect to pieces of the dark web. Um, But it's a place where, in this case, cybercrime happens every day. And so you'll have one type of cybercriminal whose expertise is to hack into a website or a company and steal information. Like, that's what they're good at. And that's their whole job. And believe it or not, you know, not so much in the U.S., but certainly in other countries, people sit in office buildings and have office parties, and their job is to go steal data and get paid for it. And the way they get paid for it is they don't always use it directly. So they go on the dark web and they sell it. And they sell it to somebody else who knows how to take it and now more specifically use it against you. And that's kind of some of the activity that happens on the dark web. And if you actually look at this information, it's amazing. It can look like a real business with a nice website that's selling services and products and and they guarantee their work. And it looks legit. The problem is what they're selling is illegal. And one of the things that I talked about in the AWT talk was, uh, was a, I sh- and I showed a picture of what it looked like, it was someone, this is years ago, they stole and then sold the Kansas voter registration database. So every voter that was registered in Kansas, they stole all that information from the database and sold it online. And I'm sure they made quite a bit of money. And for companies, what happens is, is they go steal the information about your employees. And so, for example, you have an employee that, that goes out to a website that's not work-related, and they use their company email address, and they sign up for some kind of service, and they create a username with their email address, and they create a password, and then that company gets hacked, all that information is stolen, and it ends up on the dark web for sale. And so now, someone else in the dark web buys it, and now they know, okay, this person has an email address and they use this password at this website. Well, since we have a lot of bad password practices, now they take that password and they try to log in as you somewhere else. One of those things, since you brought up email and Office 365, is they try to log in as you into your email. And if you use the same password or just a slight variation that's not very hard to guess, well, now they're reading your email. You won't know that they're reading your email, but they're reading your email. And they're c- trying to collect more information about you. And so because you didn't have a good policy that said, don't use your corporate email address for non-corporate work, you need to have a good password policy about how you make passwords and use them and how secure they are. Once these hacks occur, Trace, it's, it's actually pretty simple to, to follow the breadcrumbs and start trying to access people's information and even impersonate them. And this happens, of course, all the time in almost every company someone's gotten an email that said oh my god this looks like it came from someone internally well maybe it did <laughs> maybe not maybe they just learned enough from you that they are impersonating you or maybe they're just logged in as you and so the dark web is a is kind of a scary place the, the biggest thing again it's just another risk you have to know what it is you have to know how to mitigate the risk and put the right policies and training in place. And then you, you can be okay, you can protect yourself. But if you don't know about it, or you bury your head in the sand and pretend that it doesn't exist, then that's a big problem. And, and one of the incredible things is, in almost every company I work with, the people that the cyber criminals want to attack the most is like the CEO or the owner and the CFO, the finance people. And if you ask CEOs, they say, well, this is the only email address I have, so I use it everywhere. So some of the worst culprits are the CEOs because they don't have another email address to use when they're not at work. And so you're the person they're targeting the most, and yet you might be the most vulnerable because of your your poor practices. And so these are just really common things that cyber criminals have learned and they take advantage of. And again, we can deal with it. We just have to, to change the way we think about it get out in front of it, truly understand the risks, take the mystery and the techie talk out of it, manage it like we manage all other risks, and we can definitely handle it. But it's going to take more of a collaborative effort, Trace, than just you know everybody trying to handle it on their own and the industries not talking to each other. I mean, whoever thought that the IT industry and the insurance industry would really need to spend a lot of time together? But clearly today we do. We do. And if we don't, eh, then they're going to pay out really large ransoms and their premiums are gonna go up dramatically because they'll have no choice. A lot of information shared today, some a little scary
0: with what you shared with us, but now with all of that being said, what
2: do you want people to do with it? What I want people to do, again, like I said, I, I I want you to do two things. I want you to start thinking about your information as an asset and think about how you manage and treat your other assets and then start to do the same with information. Start to rethink what is IT? How should we get value from it? And how do we protect that asset? And that gets into the scary cybersecurity part, which again, doesn't need to be scary if you just put the work into managing and mitigating risks like you do everywhere else. And so the first thing is, do you want to rethink IT and how you get more from it to compete and protect yourselves? or do you wanna keep going with kind of the traditional views that are quickly becoming obsolete? That's really the challenge. And if you wanna make a change, start asking your internal people questions or your outsource people different questions and force them to, to start to think about it differently and be able to help you in different ways. Maybe you get help from someone different or someone new, but the companies that treat information as an asset we're all information companies today. No matter what your industry is, no matter what you do, you're an information company. And if you just accept that and treat it that way and start to make that transition, then you know you'll be fine in this area. And if you don't, then others can grab a hold of it and either outcompete you or do a better job protecting themselves.
0: Michael, is there something simple that we can do to let us know where to begin this process, where our information is, how vulnerable we are, really where we stand
2: right now? Absolutely. So, one of the things you can do on the cyber side of it is reach out to someone and just get a cybersecurity assessment. It doesn't need to be incredibly complicated or take an incredible amount of time or cost an incredible amount of money, but just start with. What are the things that, that we need to, to be aware of and how are we dealing with it today? And that's cybersecurity assessments. Those certainly exist. There are professionals that can aid in doing that. Certainly my company does that as well. And on my company website, which is listed in the notes, you know, I'm even willing to, to reach out and, and do a very simple basic beginning assessment um, as others might even at no cost because then it gives you something to feel like, okay, I have something in front of me that begins to give me a roadmap of what to do. And so instead of just feeling helpless, which is certainly easy to do with these kind of complicated topics, it's just starting with a few questions and a few answers that you can answer. It's not a techie thing that you can't answer. And you can get a few questions and a few answers and begin to paint an understanding of where you are and a roadmap of where you could go and that's cybersecurity assessments. There are also really good just information assessments from the enterprise architecture standpoint. If you're looking for more value from your information, you can start with an information assessment of of how well you're doing managing your company's information and how you even think about it. So assessments are done in every industry. Again, certainly when it comes to risk management, there's lots of assessments and there are cybersecurity assessments. And the easiest way is to start with one, I certainly do it. Other companies do it also quite well. But when you do it, it it should be fairly simple. It shouldn't take a lot of time. It should be cost effective. And then when you start to get into the details of the roadmap, that's where it can take more time and have more cost. But at least you have a beginning roadmap of where to start. And that's what I highly recommend. Well, thank you
0: for all of that. I think a lot of people are going to go to the show notes page and take advantage of some of the things you just mentioned. So I'll be sure to have those on the ScalingUpH2O.com show notes page. Not quite done asking questions yet. I've got similar questions that I ask of all my guests that I call the lightning round. Are you ready for those? I certainly am. (laughs) All right. So let's get started. If you can go back in time and talk to your former self on your first day as an enterprise architect, what advice would you give yourself?
2: So I thought about this. And the, the two things that I would, I would tell myself is, is life is changing very quickly. Certainly living through COVID right now, we, we know that. And so the first thing is you want to be adaptable. And I would tell myself, you, you want to stay flexible and adaptable. And the way you do that is simply with with education, whether it's formal or informal, and then just a range of diverse experiences in life. And, and with those two things, you can stay flexible and adaptable. So no matter what happens in the world, you're prepared to deal with it. That would be my first piece of advice. And my second piece of advice would just just be, live a life that's in service of others. And you can certainly see that from my background in the Navy and in, in the education and, and in doing podcasts like this, that I really think you get a lot of value from life and a lot of fulfillment simply by trying to first and foremost serve other people. I love that answer. What are the last few books that you've read? So books are interesting to me. Of course, someone like me, I read quite a bit. Uh, A lot of it is techie things, but, but the last three books I've read are really books that I reread. So I think many of us have bookshelves and the books that you tend to keep are the ones that you read over and over again. And so three books that I read over again and I, one I just read over the holidays was called The Speed of Trust. It's written by Stephen M. R. Covey. He's the son of Stephen Covey, who people often know. And this is a book called The Speed of Trust. And I reread that because, again, I work with executive teams a lot and how to find alignment and continuity on executive teams. And so Speed of Trust is a great one about uh, about how we build and, and work with each other in trusting ways. because. If we don't trust each other, then nir- it's really hard to do much more than that. I'm a huge fan of the Seven Habits series, and I've also read uh, that
0: book. And I love how they said that when you don't have trust, the tax
2: you pay is speed. It's going to take so much longer if it's even going to happen at all. Yes, no doubt. And so so again, someone like me, I'll bring this back to the episode. Trust in your information, that you have it, that it's correct, that it's what you need, and it's protected and and then working with people that can help you have that trust is, is very, very important. So the second book that I reread, Getting Ready for This Podcast, is actually written by someone we both know. His name is Tom Schwab, and he wrote a book on how to be a podcast guest. And to tie this way back into the interview, when I was sitting there operating a nuclear power plant, I was sitting at the reactor control panel, which actually controls the reactor itself. But the guy that was on my shift, sitting behind me, running the whole reactor plant, his name is Tom Schwab. And Tom runs a marketing firm about how to be a podcast guest, and he wrote a book about it. And of course, being a friend, I've read that book, and I reread it to get ready for the podcast today to make sure that I could try and do a good job. I think you did a great job reading the book and being a guest. (laughs) Thank you. And then the third it's a book that I, I've read and reread many times. It's a good TED Talk, if you're familiar with TED, TED.com. And it's written by a guy named Simon Sinek, and it's called Start With Why. And it's really a book about leadership and what inspires people. And, and the idea is is your company, when it describes itself, does it, does it describe itself about why it does what it does first or what it does and how? And and I reread this constantly as I'm developing my company and trying to, to live a life of service, am, am I really focused on why am I doing it or just what am I doing and how? And it's a it's very inspirational and it's certainly one that I would recommend. And and before you read the book, you could just go watch the, the TED Talk on TED.com from Simon Sinek, uh, Start With Why. Yeah, I believe he calls that the golden circle. He does, yes. He's a terrific academic that that explains things in terms that we can all understand. And and because I was one, those are my favorite academics. They take things that can be really complicated, they explain it in ways outside of academia that we all understand. And, and I find those kind of people very valuable and I very much try to be one of those people myself. Well, and I think you achieved that today
0: on today's podcast. And Hollywood always listens to Scaling Up H2O. They're trying to figure out what the next movies are gonna be for, <laughs> for the upcoming year. So when they listen to this
2: one, who plays Michael? So yeah, I had to think about this, and, and I came up with an answer that I like. Uh, it's a guy named Zachary Levi. He's, he's been out there. You probably know him, but you don't realize that you know him. He starred in a TV series called Chuck, which was this great series about a guy who works in, I forget what they, oh, they called it the Nerd Herd. It's kind of like the Best Buy Geek Squad, but this is a made-up version. And he works there, but he ends up becoming like this superhero kind of character. He also played Shazam in one of the Shazam movies. He was one of the voiceovers in Tangled. He played a character in Thor. So many people know who he is, just not necessarily specifically by name. And I think uh, he would, he would uh, do a great job playing me. Final question. You can now talk with anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? So one of my favorite characters from history because he fascinates me so much is George Washington. And the reason he fascinates me is if I understand the history correctly, George Washington was asked to be king and he turned it down. And he said, No, we just fought against kings. I don't want to then become a king. And it's an incredible lesson in how we get offered power. And do we have the wisdom of what power we should take and what power we should turn away? And I think George Washington changed all of history by being an example of someone who actually took less power than what was offered to him, And I think that's incredibly a wise thing to do. And boy, I wish we could do a little bit more of that uh, in life today.
0: Michael, thanks so much for coming on and sharing so much information about our information, how we should look at information, and some things that
2: we should start doing to make sure that it's protected. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed it. I hope your listeners enjoy it, and I hope the next AWT conference is in person. I would love to actually put faces to the names. I've been joining your after-hours events. Trace, thank you very much for doing those as a way to get to know people. Uh, I'm going to continue to do that, and and I'm going to continue to submit talks at AWT, and hopefully one day things will go back to normal and we can all meet each other face-to-face.
0: Nation, I have to tell you, I have met with many people that have tried to help me with the technology we have in our company, with the way that we distribute information in our company, but nobody has ever been able to explain what is happening and what needs to happen in a way that's actually as easy to execute as Michael has with me. In my company, I have to tell you, I'm totally impressed. I'll also tell you that initially when we started talking and I saw the PhD behind his name, it immediately made me think that this was going to be an intimidating conversation. Folks, I'm a good water treater, but I don't know that much about how I should be protecting all the technology and information that we have within our company. So again, when I saw that PhD, I figured it was going to be a bunch of alphabet soup, a bunch of sayings, a bunch of words that I just did not know what they meant. And folks, that didn't happen once. It was a conversation that allowed him to understand our company and he got to know us Before he gave us any advice. And I have to tell you, the first two things that he had us do increased our security by over 90%. They were not difficult to do, and they did not cost us a penny. The first thing that we did was we turned on multi factor authentication. That means I could actually give you my password to a particular site, and you still cannot get in it. That means that there's an email that goes out that has to be authenticated, and normally that's through some sort of code reader, but it's a little bit annoying at first, I'll have to admit, but then it just becomes a way of doing something. My email was hacked a couple of years ago, and if I was doing this, then that could have never Happen, So I highly recommend that you look into that. And folks, guess what? We're on the Office 365 platform, which means we are already paying for that service that we were not using. It didn't cost us a dime. And now I don't have to worry about anybody in our company's password getting compromised because it just can't happen because of this authentication. The other thing that he started having us do was make sure that we were getting proper updates. And I have to tell you, I have somebody that we pay to come in to make sure that happens, but then an update will happen or the server will reset and something doesn't fire properly and now we're not getting updates. So what he did, he made sure that all of that was turned on And now we get regular reports. Now, some of you might have a larger company than me, and there's somebody that's managing this 24-7. That is not me. I have somebody that comes in when we need somebody. So if I don't know about an issue, the issue is not going to get solved. And that means that we can be vulnerable when it comes to security updates. Well, now I expect an email each and every week stating that those things are done and again, that was a couple clicks. It wasn't hard to do. And it didn't cost us any money. Two things that really made our security so much better. Another thing that really impressed me that Michael does, and Michael's a member of our mastermind group. And one of the things that we do in the mastermind group is we read books together. But we don't just read books for the sake of reading them. We read books and we discuss them with each other. And then we figure out what are the handles that we can take from the book and carry into our day-to-day life to make it better, to make it easier, to make it more productive. What I learned after this interview, something that Michael does, is he creates a visual sheet of every single book that he reads. So he's just like me. When he reads a book, he takes notes, but that's where I stop. What he does, he will then refine those notes into a one-page document that gives the highlights of that book. And then he shares that. If he's ever needs to have a reminder on what that book was about, he's got all of that filed away. I was just fascinated by that, so much so that I am going to start doing that. And folks, I want to mention that the AWT has a webinar that Michael's going to be on. It's called Overcoming Your Biggest Cybersecurity Risk, Your Employees. So that's going to be on June 3rd. If you want to register for that, and I highly recommend that you do, you can go straight to the awt.org website. Nation, if you haven't left a comment about this podcast and your favorite podcast player, I urge you to do so. That helps us out in so many ways. That allows us to reach more people because we will present higher when people search for podcasts. And as you know, the bigger the Scaling Up Nation becomes, the more we are able to deliver to the Scaling Up Nation. Folks, I can't wait to bring another brand new episode to you next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and have a great week. Hop Nation, I know you are wondering about some of the benefits of joining the Rising Tide Mastermind. Well, here is Reed Hutchinson of HOH to talk about what he gets out of being a member of the group. Relationships, especially professionally, go to another level when you have a safe group of people that you can trust with your actual issues. And when you can help others out and also receive help, I just think it really creates a a deep bond. And so so new relationships, definitely a key benefit. Another benefit of being in the Rising Tide Mastermind is getting ideas and insights from others across the country and different types of roles or companies. There's a lot you can learn from reading, but there's something that happens when another person knows what you're dealing with and can share from their actual experiences. So lots of ideas and insights. Reed, thanks for sharing that. There's so many people out there in the Scaling Up Nation that just don't know what a mastermind group is and what the benefit of being a member of a group like that is. So you sharing that allows people to get a little insight of what it's like to be a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind. If you wanna learn more about becoming a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind.